0: There's a chorus of a popular Christian song that imagines what it might be like if we were to personally encounter Christ in heaven. The lyric says, Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence? Or to my knees will I fall Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? And what's the last line? You know it. I can only imagine. I like how it ends. I can only imagine. I don't know. Some have described what they are confident were personal encounters with Jesus. Mrs. Maria Rubio of Lake Arthur, New Mexico described her encounter with Jesus. One day, she says in 1977, she was frying tortillas in her kitchen when she noticed that one of them seemed to have the likeness of a face etched in the burn marks. She concluded that it was Jesus and even built a crude shrine for the tortilla. Thousands of people visited the shrine of the Jesus of the Holy Tortilla and concluded it was indeed a modern day miracle. Quote, I do not know why this has happened to me, unquote, said Mrs. Rubio, but God has come into my life through this tortilla. Did Mrs. Rubio personally encounter the glory of Jesus? Or consider Mr. Roberts Learden who says he saw and interacted with Jesus on three different occasions, and he describes two of them in writing. In the first, he went to heaven... And he went to the river of life. He says, Jesus and I visited a branch of the river of life. This branch was knee deep and crystal clear. We took off our shoes and got in. And do you know the first thing that Jesus did to me? He dunked me. I got back up and I splashed him. And we had a water fight. We splashed each other and laughed. That meant something to me for the king of glory, the son of God, to take time out for a little eight-year-old Roberts and dunk him in the river of life. When I get back to heaven, I'm going to go, I'm going to put up a historical marker on that spot. It's going to say, this is the spot where Jesus Christ became not only my Lord and Savior, but my friend. Yes, he became my friend. Now we walk and talk together, and when I hear a good joke, I can run to Jesus and listen to him laugh at it. And when he gets a good one, he tells me. He talks about the third time that he saw Jesus was when he was about 11 years old, and Jesus walked in through the front door of his home while he was watching Laverne and Shirley. Only a few of you probably know what that is. <laughs> a sitcom. He came over and sat down beside me on the couch, kind of glanced at the TV and everything in this natural world clicked off. I couldn't hear the telephone or television set. All I heard was Jesus and all I saw was his glory. He looked at me and said, Roberts, I want you to study the lives of generals in my great army throughout time. Know them like the back of your hand. Know why they were at success. Know why they failed and you'll want nothing in that area. He got up. Walked back out through the door. The TV clicked back on. And I resumed watching Laverne and Shirley. I want you to think about those encounters. And there are many more like that we could point to. And there are tens of thousands, if not millions of people who embrace that kind of thought. I want you to evaluate them with those that we actually find in the Bible. Think of Exodus chapter 3 and Moses. He saw a burning bush that wouldn't be consumed. In verse 3 of Exodus 3, Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Consider Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. With him, the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Or think of Ezekiel, the great prophet who had many encounters in seeing the Lord. In Ezekiel 3.23, he said, I got up and went out to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw by the river Kebar, and I fell on my face. Ezekiel 43.3, it was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision I saw when he came to destroy the city, and the visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kebar, and I fell on my face. Ezekiel 44.4, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the house, and I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Samson's parents, in Judges 13.22, Manoah, Samson's father, said, we will surely die, for we have seen God. Job said in Job forty-two five, "I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes." When Peter and James and John saw Jesus in the transfiguration, Matthew seventeen six says, "When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified." Peter, after fishing all night and catching nothing, then catches a boatload of fish when Jesus got into his boat and commanded him to put his net on the other side. And when Simon Peter saw that, Luke 5.8, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Or Paul Describing his own encounter with the Lord, Acts 26.13 says, At midday I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Consider even some in heaven. The 24 elders who sit in front of the throne of God day and night. Revelation 4.10, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Revelation 5.8, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." verse 14 of chapter 5 the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped revelation 7:11 and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped god revelation 11:16 and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before god fell on their faces and worshiped god revelation 19:4 And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying amen, hallelujah. And then there is the Apostle John in our passage this morning. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Those opening encounters with Jesus, I don't read them to belittle anyone. I think it's sad. I think we have an environment many times that wants to cheapen the vision of the glorified Christ and the response to a cheap vision of Christ is a cheap response. I don't think any of us, any of us would see the Lord today and want to splash him in the water. Or that we would have the gall to go back and watch a sitcom. Revelation 1 17 to 20 describes John's response to seeing the vision of the glorified Christ that we discussed last week. And what we see in these verses is a, a right response to the glory of Christ. It's a right response to the glory of Christ. It's not the only response that you will have to Christ, but it is a right response to the empowering presence of Jesus. So what does it include? It's not hard to see what this includes, but you'll see four different responses from John here. Four different responses to encountering the glory of Christ, and that's what we're going to look at. Again, we can look in many, many places of the Bible, and I just gave you a sampling of ways that people have responded when they encountered and understood the glory of Christ, But let's look carefully at John. How did he respond? First, fear. Fear. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. You have to ask, why is it that the Apostle John, when seeing the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time in decades, would respond like this. I mean, wasn't John the one who lovingly, intimately leaned on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper? Wasn't he the one that Jesus referred to as the beloved? Wasn't he one of the closest of all of the disciples and the apostles who was privileged to be in intimate closeness with the Lord on occasions that no one else got to see. And hadn't Jesus told all of his disciples that he was going to resume a place of glory that he had with the Father before he had come? So why would John be so astounded? Why would he not leap up with his hands lifted, ready to embrace the Lord, Because he's seeing him exactly as Jesus promised and he knew him so well, so intimately. Well, you have to take this response in light of the vision that he just saw. When he heard the voice that sounded like great thunder and he turned around to see it. He heard Jesus speak with explosive authority He saw him walking in the midst of the churches displaying himself as the ultimate human being clothed in exalted prominence prepared to enact final justice possessing an eternal nature having piercing and complete knowledge walking through the churches untainted by their impurity exercising complete control over the truth the churches receive showing himself to possess absolute supremacy that's who he saw And when he took that in and realized who it was he was standing in front of, he could not stand any longer. That's a far cry from the picture painted of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel accounts, isn't it? But you think, even when Jesus appeared in his first advent, in his first coming, and he was a baby lying in a feeding trough, what did the magi who had come from Persia do when they saw the baby? when they knew who he was? Matthew tells us in Matthew 2:11, they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They knew who he was. When the shepherds encountered, encountered the angelic hosts announcing his birth, Luke chapter two verse nine says, they were terribly frightened. When Isaiah talked about the Lord, when he would come in his first advent, do you remember the words that Isaiah used to describe Jesus in his incarnation? Isaiah 53. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. That's how he came the first time. As the choir beautifully saying of his first coming it was in great humility the Lord of glory came in such great humility and such humility that no one would actually look at him and be astounded with him when he walked the earth despite the divine power that he displayed through all of the divine miracles that he accomplished his external appearance made it easier for people to dismiss him not welcome him But my friends, that's not his present appearance. That's not what he looks like right now. He now is stately and robed in a kind of majesty that stuns the eyes and dazzles us. His glory exhilarates the soul. It's completely empty of sorrow and grief. It's filled with satisfaction and joy. And humanity cannot hide their faces because he looks common. Humanity will hide their face now because he appears in his blazing glory. In fact, that is the normal response. We'll see even more through the book of Revelation that when John encounters angels who are dressed in a way that represents the glorified Christ, John again is so astounded with that that he'll fall on his face and begin to even worship the angels because it's so astounding. Revelation 19.10 and two he'll see these angels. They look like the Lord. They're not the Lord. He'll bow to worship. The angels will say, no, no, that belongs to one other. These visions are very much like what Daniel, the prophet, experienced. In the book of Daniel, particularly chapter 8, in verse 15, listen to this. Daniel 8.15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Who's Daniel seeing? Not the Lord, but someone who resembles the Lord and even represents the Lord. So he came near to where I was standing and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Verse 18 says, when he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. That's quite an astounding vision of an angel, isn't it? In Daniel chapter 10, in verse 4, On the 24th day of the first month, while I was by the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz. His body was like beryl, his face had the appearance of lightning, his eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a tumult. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, while the men who were with me did not see the vision. Nevertheless, a great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, yet no strength was left in me. For my natural color turned to a deathly pallor, and I retained no strength. But I heard the sound of his words, and as soon as I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. Who was this? It wasn't the Lord. It was an angel who represented the Lord. That's how Daniel and others responded Merely to created beings who represent the Lord. John is experienced something very similar to what Daniel experienced, no doubt in such a way that his mind floods back to reading the book of Daniel and these visions and realizes the Lord is appearing to him in a similar way to give him similar visions. But you can see why he would respond as he does. I mean even think of the lord in his first coming he gave us glimpses of this didn't he do you remember when they were in the the garden and there were uh, of the tomb of jesus and there were guards who were guarding that tomb when the angel came what happened to those guards they shook for fear and became like dead men When Joshua saw the captain of the Lord's army in Joshua 5.14, he fell to the earth and bowed down. Have you ever thought about your own approach to Christ when you contemplate who he really is? I wonder, what did we think about the Lord Jesus this morning When the service began and we read from Psalm 7, what did you think? As we sang through each of the hymns, new and old, and we had this vision of Christ painted in front of us, how did you find your heart responding as you contemplated who the Lord is? As we walk through what God says in his word here, about Christ, what is the response that you find happening in your own heart? Have you approached him casually this morning? Are you dismissive? Are you disinterested? Are you bored with Christ? Did you come into this room and did you think that really the reason why Jesus came was to elevate thoughts About myself. That's a popular view today. Jesus has come so you'll know how valuable you are. Did you come here to evaluate the church's production, technology, lighting, style, parking? I hope not. The coffee. The carpet. God help us. Not that those things have no importance. But you wonder. What have we thought about the Lord today? To genuinely comprehend who it is that we are worshiping and who is among us. Should inspire a degree of fear in our hearts. Because. It inspires fear in us when we really think about who the Lord is, because the more you understand who he is, the more you start recognizing who you are not. All of us. You know, evangelism and worship, our approach to those things of introducing people to Christ and Loving the Lord through our singing and praying and hearing the word and responding to it. Evangelism and worship, the life of discipleship, is not really about helping people to become more comfortable with themselves in front of Jesus. There is comfort to be found in Christ, there is mercy. But before anyone can have any sense of comfort or encouragement or compassion, there first must be a sense of fear and dread in front of him because we do not deserve comfort. We do not deserve encouragement. We do not deserve to stand on our feet in front of the Lord of glory. We know what we deserve, to be dead. If we really understand who he is, if we really comprehend who our Lord is, we know we deserve to be dead. This reverential fear, this breathtaking fear, this eye-popping fear, us falling to our faces in fear with the blood drained from our faces, turning white. Anyone this side of heaven, and as we've seen, even some in heaven, when they see glor- the glorified jesus that is how they respond i we all have to ask ourselves the question when's the last time you actually found yourself dropping to your knees and putting your face to the ground because you're so overwhelmed with who he is fear is the first appropriate response to seeing and comprehending the glory of jesus christ now it's not the only response the second response you see in verses 17 and 18 is confidence. Isn't that interesting? First, he falls to his face like a dead man, and now he responds with confidence. You say, oh, I was hoping you'd get to that. Maybe here's where we can actually you know, breathe a sigh of relief, Because I know some of you have likely been raised in church environments where Jesus is pictured as so wrathful that you can never have any confidence in front of him. And I know that the fearful vision of Jesus that we have here is one that can easily become the only picture of Jesus that some people have. I mean, isn't he gentle and humble in heart, Matthew 11? Isn't he full of grace and compassion and kindness and mercy? Isn't he the very definition of love and acceptance? I think we would have to say that he is based on what we read in the New Testament. Of course he is. Most assuredly he is. But you do understand, no one really, no one can really appreciate mercy and grace and compassion and salvation if they first do not understand him in his glory. When you find him in such dreadful, fearful glory, and then he places his hand of acceptance on you, it's stunning. And it breeds confidence. Confidence really does soar when you truly know the glorified Jesus in fear, And then you find that fearful Lord treating you with tenderness. The goal is not merely to see Jesus as a kind person, but to see him as fearful and then find him to be compassionate. And that's what John finds when all of his life's energy involuntarily flees from his body and he falls to the ground boneless. What does the text say next? And he placed his right hand on me, and he said, what? Don't be afraid. So the right response to seeing Jesus is to be afraid? Yes, so that Jesus can place his hand and say, do not be afraid. Now, why his right hand? Well, the right hand is the hand of authoritative position and power in the Scripture, It was Jesus' right hand that held control over the angels in chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 1. God the Father will hold the scroll that contains the remainder of the book of Revelation and its succeeding judgment on the earth. It will be held in his right hand and the Lamb will come and take it from the right hand of the Father, demonstrating the Father's authority and the Son's authority. When Jesus ascended to heaven, he sat down, numerous places in the New Testament tell us, at the right hand of the Father. Sorry, lefties. Right-handedness is the sign of power and authority and prominence. I better leave it at that because I know the left-handers are going to send me notes or come visit me. That's, That's the testimony through Scripture. And so it's not insignificant that he put his right hand on John as he lay prostrate on the ground. And he didn't do that just to just to give him the the power of touch. He didn't do it merely to have compassion on him either. He touched him to commission him, to send him. And he touches him, and as he touches him, he says, Do not be afraid. This response from the glorified Jesus, it's a similar response to what Daniel experienced in Daniel chapter 10 when he saw that angel. It says, then a hand touched me, Daniel 10, 10 and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And in verse 12, it says, he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel. Verse 18 of Daniel 10, then this one with human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. Remember, Daniel lost it all. I mean, the blood rushed from his face. He had no composure. He's on the ground. And the angel that represented the Lord touches him again and actually breathes strength into him. When Jesus, when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, you remember that in the midst of the storm? Matthew chapter 14. Do you remember what Jesus said to them? Take courage, it is I. What? You remember, they're terrified, not just because of the storm, but they see someone walking on the water, and they think it's perhaps a ghost, and he says, no, it's me. Before he steps into their boat. When Zacharias saw the angel and heard that his wife will bear the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist, the angel said to Zacharias in Luke 13, do not be afraid. When Mary encountered the angel to tell her that she would give birth to the Messiah, what did the angel tell her in Luke 1.30? Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. When Paul saw Christ and fell to his face, the risen Lord said in Acts 27.24, do not be afraid, Paul. Paul. That vision of Christ's glory, which should rightly strike life threatening fear into us, can also provide life strengthening confidence. And what is it about the Lord when He places His hand on you? What is it that inspires confidence when you're so stricken with fear in front of this vision of Christ? Well, notice how the Lord speaks of Himself in verse 17. He places His right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. Why? I'm the first and the last. That is, this is a statement about his deity. This is the glorified Son of God is the first and the last. And he begins with this statement, I am the first and the last, which is really fascinating because it was the Apostle John in his gospel that records for us the seven different I am statements from the Lord Jesus. I am the bread of life, chapter 6, verse 35. I am the light of the world, John chapter 8, verse 12. I am the door, John 10, 7. I am the good shepherd, John 10, 11. I am the resurrection and the life, 11, 25. I am the way, the truth, and the life, 14, 6. I am the true vine, 15, 1, and 5. And you remember why the Jews took up stones to stone him? John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. There will be several I am statements in the book of Revelation also. Chapter 1, verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega. Be said again in chapter 21, verse 6. Here in verse 17, I am the first and the last. In chapter 2, verse 23, I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. Why is the I am so important? Well, this is the divine name of God, isn't it? This is the name of God's redemption. This is the name of God's covenant relationship. Yahweh that comes from the Hebrew word to be. I am. I exist. I'm eternal. This is God's personal name. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. You will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. So when John falls to the ground dead and feels the hand of the glorified Christ on his back, he hears the words of divinity, I am, and I am the first and the last. This is a further description of this person being eternal God. Isaiah four six, Isaiah 41.4, Isaiah 48.12, All three of those are references to God saying of of himself, I am the first and the last. If you want to quibble with, you want to reject the idea that Jesus is deity, that Jesus is God, you're going to have to wrestle with these, these titles here because these titles are Old Testament titles for God that Jesus takes up for himself saying, I am God. There's no clearer depiction of the deity of Christ than what we see right here. You say, well, how in the world would that comfort him? That God just put his hand on him, you would think, is he about to squash him? I'm God. No, he didn't put his hand on him with some pressure of condemnation. He put his right hand of commissioning to say, you are mine and I am God. Listen, if God puts his hand of commission and sending and choice on you after you see who he really is and you're not dead, what do you have to fear? What would you possibly have to fear? If you're not dead, you have nothing to fear. In fact, where does Jesus go next in the description of himself? Don't be afraid. I'm God. I am. I'm the first, the last, and I'm what? The living one. The living one. I have no beginning or end. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. If you think you should be dead in the presence of God, and the God who has his hand on you says... I'm the living one and I had become dead but now I am alive forever? What does that say to you? Death has no hold over you either, does it? If the one who controls death has not taken life from you but has commissioned you with his hand of righteousness, what do you have to fear? In fact, he he goes on to say he's, he's the living one. Again, that statement, we, we could just go through the Bible. Deuteronomy 5.26, 1 Samuel 17.26, Hosea 2.1, Psalm 42.3, Matthew 16.16, 16, Acts 14.15, Romans 9.26. And there's a lot more I could list here. Describe God as the living one. This is another statement of deity. And the one who is dead and is now alive forevermore, not only has he experienced death and life, what does he say next? And I have the keys of death and Hades. I have the keys. Keys represent authority to lock or unlock. Like the church in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 has the keys to recognize what heaven has already said about A person's profession of faith, that's what it means to be in or out of the church. The church has the keys, as it were, in church discipline to recognize who's in or out, because we recognize what heaven has already said. Keys are authority. To have the keys of death and Hades is to have authority over physical death, because death is the fact of life leaving someone, and Hades is the place of the dead, if you have the keys over the fact of death and the place of death, and you determine who is and who is not going to face death, physical death or eternal death, you have someone who has complete authority. What, I mean, what else is there to fear? Well, what are we most afraid of most of the time? I, uh, it's usually death. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you in life? the one who controls death has just put his hand of gracious, kindness, commission on him and said, I'm the one who controls death. John fell to his face as a dead man and the one who controls death kept him alive. Isn't that fascinating? I think that should give us stabilizing confidence. You don't stand back to your feet and say, great, let's jump in the river and have a water fight. Not when you see the guy with the keys of death and Hades dangling off his belt. But you do get up confident. If he's accepted you, nothing can oppose you. You remember the comments of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, when he thinks about the resurrection to come for all of us, he says, oh, death, death where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, we feel it now. We feel it now because death still comes and touches us. But every funeral of every Christian has this, not just a tinge, but this core of hope and opportunity and triumph in the midst of it because we know death is not final. The one who was dead and is alive forevermore and holds the keys of death and Hades is the one who's promised resurrection. The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember Paul's final words in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore my beloved brethren, if you know that you have resurrection and eternal life, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You're struck with fear if you know who it is who's standing in front of you, yes. But when he doesn't condemn you, but puts his hand of kind, gracious commission on you, says, I want you to represent me. He has chosen you. You should have absolute confidence in his presence. Yes. There should be fear. But no reason to fear when God is accepted. You, you know that to be true. I mean, you, you don't encounter Jesus and think, man, I'm awesome. I mean, people don't go to the Grand Canyon and see that and think, I am incredible. You don't go to the peak of a mountain and see the beauty and the grandeur of all that surrounds it and think, I am better than this. You don't think that. You never think that. No one crosses an ocean and thinks, I am superior. Grandeur humbles us, doesn't it? And humility is the ground floor for any confidence before him. Before you have confidence in God, You must first be humbled, but when you are humbled and he accepts, there then is confidence. Let's look at a third response to Christ's glory. Submission. Submission. We find it in verse 19. Therefore, write. I I think you should stop right there for a moment. You're going to because I'm going to stop you right there for a moment, but... What is the therefore, therefore? Don't move past that too quickly. Therefore, because of who he is in the vision that we saw in verses nine through 16, because of who he is as possessing authority over all death, therefore, I say to you, John, write. What do you think John is thinking? Ah, oh, I'm not a good writer. I don't know, Lord, I, writing's not my thing. I'm, I'm here on this island. If you get me off the island... Now, maybe we can talk about writing. No, because of who I am and who you know I am, write. Write and keep on writing. In fact, he's going to be told to write and he's never going to be told to stop writing except for one spot in the book of Revelation when they said, now don't write this down, chapter 10. But interesting, until he is humbled and until he gets his confidence under the mercy of God, is he ever given a task to do? So he doesn't get a task until he really recognizes who the Lord is. And when he rightly responds to the Lord, he gains the task of responsibility from the Lord. and told to write. Now this is essentially resuming what the Lord started to say back in verse 11. You remember verse 11. He heard the, vo- the voice that was like the sound of a trumpet and it said, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. You remember that? He was starting that, the voice like the trumpet said, write. So I assume that verse 19 is still said in that trumpet-like voice. And he's resuming what he said, because John had to tell us, now what did I see when I turned around? And he reveals that to us, and now the Lord resumes it. Now write this down. And what is he to write down? Well, there's three parallel phrases that are given here. Write those things which you have seen and write those things which are, and write those things that will take place after these things. The way they're constructed grammatically here gives us the idea that they are three independent, parallel, distinct ideas... They're parallel to each other in that they're they're distinct ideas given together. You're going to write what you have seen, then you're going to write what is, and now you're going to write then what will happen after these things. What does it represent? What are those things which you have seen? Well, what has he seen? Write what you have seen. It's the aorist tense verb, meaning don't write what's about to happen in the future. It's not future tense. It's not present tense what's going on in the present and currently. It's right what you have seen. What has been accomplished? What has he seen? Christ. The vision of Christ. That vision that is so necessary to see everything else that's going to be revealed. He has seen the glorified Christ. He has seen the resurrected Christ. Verse 12, he turned to see Verse 17, I did see, I saw, uses that verb tense again, I saw it. Now write what you saw. Clearly from the text, he is to write down what he has just seen. Then he is also to write those things which are, that is a present tense verb, the things which are happening. In fact, we'll see the present tense use of this verb, a me. we'll see it used again in verse 20. And we will see over and over again repetitiously in every letter that is written to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 to pay attention to what the Spirit is saying, present tense, is saying to the churches. It seems very clear that what he has seen is the vision of Christ. The things that are are the things that the Spirit is saying to the churches who exist now. Seven churches, because in them is a comprehensive description of who Christ is and how the church is to respond to him as the church. It's an exhortation as to how the churches are to live in light of who their Lord is until the events of the future begin. It's a section that reminds us that Christ is protecting the church, assessing the church, correcting the church, living with the church. They are not abandoned. The Lord is committed to his church. In fact, as you read through them, you're going to find there's no future narratives in the churches described there. There's nothing describing a narrative about the future. There are promises that talk to the church that what you do now has future ramifications, but there's nothing about the future actually narrated in chapters 2 through 3. It's about what's going on in the churches now until the future arrives. So write what you've seen. Write what's happening now with the church. And then third, write down those things which will take place after these things. It's important that you see that phrase, after these things. It's mentioned again in chapter four, verse one. Turn over there and look at it just for a moment because it's found twice in verse one of chapter four. So he's told to write the things that are gonna take place after these things. And what's the first phrase of chapter four? After these things. Now, after he saw the vision about what to write to the seven churches, after that vision starts a new vision. You say, well, that doesn't tell us that all these things then take place after the churches. No, not by that phrase. It just says another vision takes place. And what does he see in that vision? I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me. Well, we know who that is said, come up here and I will show you what must take place. What's the phrase? After these things. What was he told to write back in verse 19? What's going to happen after these things? After what things? After what is? Which he described in chapters 2 and 3, and as chapter 4 begins, he's now going to describe what happens after these things, what happens after the present state of the church. In fact, in chapter 4, through the rest of the vision into chapter 22, you're going to find that phrase after these things repeated several more times. What you will not find in chapters 4 through 22 is the word until the end of chapter 4 in the, in the, in the benediction of the book. But you won't find the term ecclesia or church from chapter 4 all the way. You'll find mention of saints to tell you that in this period of the future there will be some who believe but what was repeated over and over in chapters 2 through 3 about the church and what the churches should do is never mentioned again from chapter 4 through chapter 22. In fact, the aim of what happens in chapters 4 through 22 is not on the church it's on the earth and those who dwell on the earth and the kings of the earth and those who resist God it's the pouring out of the wrath of God on the earth dwellers it's not a description of the life of the church This is likely a similar phrase to what is used in Daniel chapter 2, particularly verses 44 to 45 when Daniel was told to write about the future. And they're described in Daniel 2, especially 44 and 45, a coming kingdom that would rule over all the competing nations of the earth. It's talking about the future that ushers in the return of the Messiah. So what do you have in verse 19? You have a virtual outline of the book, don't you? Write what you have seen vision in chapter 1, write what is. Chapters 2 and 3, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And what will happen after these things, that's chapters 4 through 22, where that phrase, after these things, is mentioned over and over again. It's an outline of the book. What do you think John does? I don't see him quibbling with the Lord here, do you? No, he writes. That's what we have. He writes. He he submitted to what the Lord said. That's an appropriate response to seeing the glory of Christ. It's obedience. It's humble, straightforward, submissive obedience. You do understand. That's what flows from being stunned by who Jesus is, stunned that he has not struck you down. What do you do next? Do you then begin to tell the Lord your opinion? Do you begin to share with the Lord, I think, I don't, I don't like, I don't want, I want, I, uh," you don't do that, do you? He says, right, and you're right. He says, go, and you go. You don't quibble with the Lord. You submit to him. You do understand Our submission is directly tied to the vision of Christ we have. If we don't want to submit to the Lord, it's because we don't realize who's talking to us. If we want to quibble with what he's ordained, it's because we think we have a voice big enough to grapple with him. To dismiss him, to ignore him. That's that's just to demonstrate we don't recognize who he is. And I recognize there could be a lot of us in the room today And we're very proud people. We're very proud of our thoughts and opinions and ideas. Pride is at the heart of all sin, isn't it? And that's why we need a vision of Christ that humbles us and stuns us and a response from God that keeps us in a submissive state that we say, I don't have a reason to express my pride about my thinking in front of this God. Whatever he says, that's what I need to do. If he says to stop this, I should stop this. If he says to start this, I should start it. He holds the keys of death and Hades. Our opinions are ridiculously irrelevant in light of who he is. We don't debate, we submit. Let's look at the last, the fourth response to encountering Christ's glory. Verse 20 comprehension comprehension i think this is how it flows you're stunned by his greatness you're amazed with his mercy you receive a task from him and then you begin to understand what is to be done and understanding is what happens next because now the lord tells john what the vision means he gives him understanding as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That's pretty easy, isn't it? The stars are the angels, the lampstands are the churches. You say, wait a minute, there's more to it than that, right? Sure, who are, who are the angels that were in his hand? Well, there's a great debate about whether these are human messengers some have described them as elders of the church or maybe just some messenger, human messenger sent to the church because the word angelos used here in other places in the Bible and other places in secular Greek can be used to refer to a, a human messenger. But I mentioned this earlier. I, I don't think that's the idea here. I don't think they're human messengers at all. The word angelos is used about 60 times in this book. If he meant human messengers by using this term that would be the most confusing way to describe and use this term in the book because this would be the only time in the book it refers to a human messenger and I've heard some they they've said well it doesn't make a lot of sense for John to receive a revelation from Jesus delivered through an angel and then he has to give it back to an angel who's going to give it to a human so you want to quibble with what seems strange in the book of Revelation? Uh, it's not necessarily strange that that would happen, that he's writing to an angel. And then some would say, well, the angel seems to be addressed And in, in each of these churches. And the angel is sometimes then told to repent. So maybe it's a human because the angels can't sin. Well, no, the angel isn't the one who's addressed. The church is the one who is addressed. The Spirit is speaking to the churches, not to the angel. So I think it makes the most sense just to understand this the way the word is used through the rest of the book. It's given to the angel. And by the way, Hebrews 1.14 says angels are ministering spirits sent to minister for those who will inherit salvation. Christians. Heavenly angels have been given specific assignments in other places, even assigned to some geographical areas like Daniel 10. Where one angel was assigned to the king of Persia. There's a similar context that we see here in Revelation. Daniel 12.1 refers to the angel Michael who stands as a prince over the sons of your people, over the Jewish people. Angels were described as stars in other places symbolically in Job 38.7, Isaiah 14, Daniel 8. Revelation 12.4 describes angels as stars. Angels can be assigned to serve specific people. We know that from Matthew 18.10. Their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. It seems there are angels assigned to serve certain people. You say, oh, does that mean that Summit Woods has their own specific guardian angel? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Guess what? I, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. I, I could write a book, I guess, if I had seen it, right? That's a, that's what you normally do when you write, see things like that. I haven't seen that. Maybe there is, maybe there's not. I just know there are seven angels with these seven churches meant to give this message to those churches by God's divine hand. And it was angels, I know, that communicated the law to Moses. Galatians 3 and Hebrews 2 says, it was an angel who communicated God's truth to Zacharias directly. It was an angel who communicated God's truth to Mary directly. So it's not uncommon for angels to interact with human beings to give God's revelation. So it's not really that strange. So I take the angels here to be angels. Angels divine supernatural being sent by God to deliver these messages and the whole message of the book of Revelation really to all of the churches. And each of the church got the whole thing. And then the seven golden lampstands, these are the seven churches. These are single branched lampstands, not seven branched lampstands. It's just one single lampstand They hold an oil lamp at the top of them. They can be moved around, as it were. He moves in and out of them, it says. They represent those entities, perhaps filled by the Spirit, carrying the word of the Spirit. They're lights to the world. They're lights to the the globe. Philippians 2.15, we appear as lights in the world So John, after being stunned and strengthened, finds himself submissive to the call of Christ and then he gains wisdom and insight into the meaning of what he's called to communicate. That's that's how this response works. Know who Jesus is and respond with appropriate fear to him and receive from him the divine, kind, gracious calling Do what he says in a submissive way and find yourself understanding over and over, point by point, what God intends. It's a great description kind of of overview of the Christian life, isn't it? But I want you to think about this as we finish. Fear, confidence, submission, comprehension, in response to A vision of Jesus? In one word, do you know what we call that? Worship. That's what it means to worship. To have an appropriate fear. To have an appropriate confidence. To have an appropriate submission. To have a right comprehension. That's worship. What does John do in his response to the glorified Christ? He worships. He worships Christ. Have you ever stopped on a Lord's Day maybe to back up and maybe you should do this today? Go back and think about what vision of Jesus Christ was painted for us from the beginning of this service to its completion. You know, you can go online and we have a a post on our website that will link you to the slides of all the lyrics of the songs. So what if you went back today and you said, what vision of God was painted for us in Psalm 7 as we started the service? What vision of Christ was communicated as we sang these songs and these lyrics? Write down, what did we learn of Christ? When Dalton prayed, and by the way, we also typically put up the text of, what the elders pray that's published every week so that you could read it back again and maybe even use it in your own time of prayer. What was communicated about Christ? What vision of Christ was communicated in that? What vision of Christ was communicated in the teaching of the word? As we close in a minute, think carefully about what we're saying about who Jesus is. If you want to evaluate a church, that's what you evaluate, isn't it? Who is Christ and what is the right response to him? And for some here today, belief and repentance needs to be the response. And to be shaken out of your, your stupor spiritually. To realize there's more to your life than what you're living right now. And you will see this, you will see this Christ one day. And will it be his hand of mercy that rests on your shoulder that welcomes you into eternity? Will it be the hand of judgment that comes against you fiercely? As Psalm 7 says, to the one who won't repent comes the fierce judgment of God. Oh, I hope, I hope we, we look for that day and we long for that time When we see the Lord, not because we think so big of ourselves, but we know who he is and he's shown us such mercy and we're humbled. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask for your help now as we respond to what we have heard. I pray for those who need to turn in repentance that you would show them, help them to see the way they've been responding to you and let them see the kind of thoughts that they've had of you and compare those to the thoughts that John is reflecting here. And I pray it would bring their hearts to a place where they will turn from their self-focus and be humbled and submissive and ready to follow. I pray for all of us, Lord. It's it's too easy for us to get confidence in ourselves, in our own church, in the way we do things. A right vision of you will never leave us in a place of pride. It will humble us every time. So humble all of us. You are exalted. None of us are. We're created beings who stand in front of the living one who has never been created. I pray you'd give us a vision of Christ that we need to see appropriately now. Remind us of who you are. Teach us great thoughts about Christ so that we respond appropriately. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.